So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Anamites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we have come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, and bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapons with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and all the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you have heard the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at all the work, and half of them had held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at this time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us, for by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his hand, at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. 
going to come up to the front and we'll pray together before you head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. This way. Hey, guys. <laughs> like herding cats right now. We're, no, we're going to pray. <laughs> Yeah, they took, they took, they took the detour. Yeah, here they come. Here they come. All right. <laughs> okay, we're gonna pray, guys. Great to see you all today. Put our hands in the air, and we're gonna bring our hands down past our eyes, close our eyes, and pray together. Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for Sunday mornings when we can come to church, be with our friends, but also to learn about you, to learn again how much you love us, what you've done for us through your son Jesus. We pray for all the children, whether in story keepers or nursery today, that they would have a great time. We pray that in nursery they would learn much about you, that uh, they would listen well to Miss Tara, listen well to each other, and uh, be, be encouraged by their time together. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You guys can head on out. <laughs> Today is Church with Commentary. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll think about Nehemiah. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the biggest group in Story Keepers in a long time. We thank you that you've brought each of us here today because we know uh, we are here because of your good purposes in our lives. And we pray that this would not be a wasted time. We know it, it will not be as we... Um, Focus on you and have ears to hear, a heart to understand your goodness, your love, your care, your direction. Uh, pray that you'd be with all of us now, whatever point in our journey of faith we might be at, that this would encourage us and stir us to faith and obedience in you, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Story uh, you might have heard is, uh, is told of a foreman who is on a building site, asks one of the builders what he's doing. The builder replies, I'm breaking rocks. Goes to another builder, asks him what he's doing. He says, I'm earning a wage to support my family. Goes to a third builder, asks him the same question, and the builder replies, I'm building a cathedral. Presently in a sermon series on the book of Nehemiah entitled Rebuild to help us think about what it might look like for us in a season of transition and rebuilding after the pandemic, after changes to our pastoral staff, and so on. And so far in this series, we've seen how Nehemiah, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Susa in the Persian Empire, how Nehemiah had gained permission from the king to return to his homeland, and in particular to Jerusalem, in order to help with the rebuilding of the city walls in 445 BC, and in turn, the rehabilitation of the city. 
Nehemiah could see the vision. He could see the cathedral, as it were, of what needed to be done because he understood that the rebuilding of Jerusalem was a crucial piece of God's big story, such that God's people would be in God's place for this time, that the Israelite nation would have a home again, so that out of that nation could come the promised Messiah to usher in his rule and his reign and bring salvation and forgiveness to everyone who trusts in him right down to this present day. But alongside a vision like that, you need tools to help you persevere when obstacles arise, when opposition surfaces, and when perhaps the vision grows a little dim. And that's what Nehemiah 3 and 4 are all about. We're going to think about both chapters this morning. And we're going to see that the two keys in these chapters to persevering in the task of rebuilding are prayer and action things that we've looked at in the last two weeks, but how we bring them together in these chapters. We're going to look at how that gets played out specifically in these two chapters this morning as we look at these chapters in, in three stages of the story. First of all, unity in diversity. Secondly, opposition to progress. And thirdly, the God who fights. Perseverance in rebuilding requires prayer and action. First then, unity and diversity. If you have a Bible open or in front of you or the ESV scripture journal uh, and you scan your eye over this chapter, someone have the page number for this? 469 in the Pew Bibles if you want to follow along. So if you, if you look at chapter 3 and you scan your eye over the chapter, it may just look like a list of names of people who contributed to the rebuilding of the wall and what they did. And I'm guessing to some of us here, that might not sound terribly inspiring. It's one of those chapters, if you're reading through the Bible, you kind of look at it and you Maybe I'll just go to chapter four. And indeed, if that's what crosses your mind, you certainly have company on this. Many preachers who preach through Nehemiah uh, skip chapter three completely, while one commentator I read this week refers to the chapter as, quote, a colorless memorandum of assignments. Well, while I didn't ask Chris to read chapter three this morning, I do want us to pay some attention to it because it actually is a beautiful picture of God's people united in mission together. Let's get a taste of the chapter by reading verses 1 to 4. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakos, repaired. And next to them, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, son of Mehezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Nehemiah's account of the rebuilding proceeds anti-clockwise, starting and finishing at the Sheep Gate, which was near the northeast corner. But what's most striking in this chapter, and you maybe just picked it up in those first few verses, are three words that get repeated over and over and over again in this chapter, next to him, next to them, next to them. 
There's a unity amongst the people, this group of people in this project that frankly I think is remarkable and is moving. If you go to the trouble of counting them up, there are 41 teams listed here, working side by side, united in purpose to rebuild the wall. But as is so often in the case of God's design in this world, it's a unity in diversity. Because as you go through the chapter, you discover that working side by side are goldsmiths and a perfumer, merchants, priests and Levites, temple servants and district officers. In some places, there's just an individual at work. So for example, verse 14, Malkajah, the son of Rechab, was on his own repairing the dung gate, which might explain why no one else wanted to be there with him, given that location. But in other places, there are family units working together, with sons and daughters mobilized for the task. There's a geographical diversity to the group, to, to the group as well. Volunteers from eight different places that were up to a 20-mile radius from the city. So that when you realize what's going on here, it struck me this week, this is like the ultimate good neighbors camp. You, you figure they had to bring in experts to, to help uh, all these people, many of whom had little or no construction skills whatsoever, to teach them how to build their section of the massive wall. That regardless of their level of skill, everyone was in this project together. But there's one other thing related to that that I want us to consider before we move on to chapter 4, and that is that in the rebuilding of Jerusalem's walls, no one has a special gift. Or to be a little more accurate, many people had special gifts, but their gifts were irrelevant to this project. Being a goldsmith, or a perfumer, or a priest, or an administrator, was not of particular relevance to this task at hand. Some commentators want, seem to want to make this passage the Old Testament equivalent to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul talks about the church as a body with many parts, a body of people exercising their different spiritual gifts that God has given to them. And that's a really important teaching on God's equipping every believer with particular gifts and abilities for the building up and the serving of the church. But I think the point here in Nehemiah 3 seems to be somewhat different, that there's kingdom work, rebuilding work for all of us to be involved in, irrespective of our particular spiritual gifts. Michael Green was an Anglican minister in England, uh, died in 2019, wrote over 50 books in his, in his life, which continue to be a great help to Christians today. But one of his most helpful books to me was one called Evangelism in the Early Church, in which he points out that the, the early church grew through evangelism. But what was interesting, he said, was how that evangelism happened. You might think that there must have been some great preachers in those days. And if you were a Christian, to share the gospel with your non-Christian friends, you'd bring them to hear those renowned preachers. Michael Green, however, points out that it was actually dangerous to bring non-Christians to church because in many places, if you brought the wrong non-Christian to church, you might all be dead the next day. So how did they evangelize people? by everyone getting involved. Everyone evangelized people. 
You didn't rely on the great preachers. You did it yourself. Every body in the body of Christ, whether a goldsmith, a perfumer, an administrator, or anything else, everyone was necessary for the work of ministry because the ministry of the people of God requires all the people of God. Now, thankfully, the risks from bringing your unbelieving friends to church today are significantly less than they were 2,000 years ago, but the principle hasn't changed. The ministry of the people of God requires all the people of God. So that whether it was the physical building of a city wall in Nehemiah's day or the rebuilding work of discipleship and evangelism today, every single person in the body of Christ is necessary to do the work of ministry. So if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, that includes you. You're needed for the work of discipleship and evangelism. And if, as I suspect some of us might say, well, that's all very well, but I don't think I know how to do that. I don't feel I'm equipped for that. I want you to watch this short video. Yeah. 
So is there anything that's stopping you from turning and, and believing in Jesus? And are there other people in the of your life stopping you? Probably not. For reasons. If you try to clean yourself up before coming to Jesus, it's like trying to get clean before you take a shower. Is there anything stopping you? We shared fruit be circles with 34 people, four were already believers. 13 chose to remain brokenness, but some were deeply impacted. And 17 wanted to leave brokenness and receive Christ. There are many powerful ways to share the gospel, and the three circles is a great place to start. So our, our denomination, EPC, has uh, adopted uh, this tool for sharing the gospel, three, three circles, as a resource to help churches like ours share the great news of Jesus. And I have to say, I really, I really like the three circles presentation. I've even got my three circles wristband on today. If you want to ask about it afterwards, I like it because it's simple, it's short, and it's even, even if... You know, people don't kind of come to make a decision. It's a great conversation starter about Jesus. Last weekend at our presbytery meeting, we had a workshop on the three circles, and it was really encouraging to hear stories from various people there, pastors and uh, non-pastors, of conversations that they'd had as a result of using this tool. So we have a session meeting just over a week. I'm going to be talking with our elders about how we might help equip you to feel comfortable to use the three circles. If you have another way of sharing your faith that's not three circles, then by all means keep going uh, with that. But I always like the quote of D.L. Moody, who, who was, uh, someone came to him and complained about his evangelism, what he was doing for evangelism, and D.L. Moody said, well, I like my way of evangelism better than your way of not doing evangelism. I think that's a good thing to remember for all of us who struggle with this. Why do we want to make this a priority? Back to Nehemiah, because the ministry of the people of God requires all the people of God, unity and diversity. But second, in Nehemiah 3 to 4, we come to opposition to progress. As we turn the page to chapter 4, we discover that there's much pressure on Nehemiah and those building the walls to just pack up their tools and stop working. But as we look at the nature of that pressure, we discover that it's not dissimilar to pressure that we might feel to give up on the ministry of building, rebuilding in the church. And the similarity shouldn't surprise us because as a number of the commentators make the point, the instigator and orchestrator of attacks on God's people to get them to try to pack in all of this is none other than Satan himself. Nehemiah 4 shows us three of the primary weapons that the evil one uses through human agents against the church. And the first one comes in chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, and it's scorn. Look at those verses. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Well, if you were here last week, we met Sanballat and Tobiah. 
for the first time last week. And here in chapter 4, they rear their ugly heads again. And Sambalat's no dummy here. He understands, as it were, the weapons of psychological warfare and how they can be mobilized to destroy morale in any sphere of life. Morale is undermined at the deepest level when we discover that people are making fun of us or saying how completely stupid we are for doing what we're doing. And each of Sambalat's questions here is dripping with scorn and aimed at puncturing the builder's morale. With God's help, Nehemiah had generated excitement and vision and hope, the sense that the reconstruction of the walls was possible after all and everyone working together could make it happen. But with obvious forethought, Sambalat plays on the insecurity and the self-doubt and the fear of failure that is part and parcel of most people's makeup in this fallen world as he belittles the builder's qualities, calls them feeble Jews, as he derides their ambitions, as he mocks their optimism, as he undermines their confidence, and as he magnifies their problems. And while his speech was delivered to his supporters, his intended target audience was obviously the 41 teams of builders with the goal of paralyzing their effort by fostering hopelessness and despair. That's the devil's first weapon against a rebuilding church, the use of scorn. We'll come back in a few moments to see how Nehemiah and the builders respond to this opposition, but let's look at the other two weapons used against them first. And the second weapon involves threats, physical threats in this case. Look at verses 7 to 8 and verse 11. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse 11, our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And we notice here opposition to this work of rebuilding had continued to actually expand so that now it's coming from every direction. Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites already had the three sides of north, east, and south covered. With the addition here of the Ashdodites, that meant the west was now accounted for, so that the people of God now are surrounded by this unholy alliance of opponents to the rebuilding enterprise. And together this alliance starts plotting to launch a physical attack against Jerusalem to cause confusion that will result in the abandoning of the project. And the combined forces surrounding Jerusalem were bound to be numerically more more numerous than those in Jerusalem. And so the physical threat here was extremely real. Devil's second weapon against a rebuilding church was threats. And then the third weapon the devil can use to derail church's efforts is discouragement. See the signs of discouragement in two places here. Look first at the response of some to the physical threats we just looked up. Pick it up in verse 11, read to verse 12. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. 
Now, there's little doubt that these rural Jewish settlers, living in something of a 20 to 30-mile radius around Jerusalem, they probably thought they were being helpful here. They were, they were fully behind the rebuilding, but they'd heard about this possibility of physical attacks, and they thought, well, now's the time for caution, for safety, and for those in the building project to return home. So that they, we read here, they apparently made special trips to the city to plead their case with the builders. Nehemiah tells us they warned the builders 10 times. You kind of get the sense as Nehemiah reports that it's his way of saying, you know, if they told us once, they told us a dozen times here. But behind their warnings is this resigned defeatism, that their assurances were that, that there, were, there was no way of avoiding tact, could, could not but have depressed and demoralized those that were being spoken to. And as it was in the days of Nehemiah, so it can be today. J.I. Packer puts it like this, few, if any, churches lack friends of a sort who feel it is their special ministry to impart negative assurances of this kind and who never doubt that their doomsaying is the most helpful contribution they can make. The factual information they bring may, of course, be useful, but the gloom they spread is unbelief masquerading as wisdom and needs to be nipped in the bud. He who has ears, let him hear. There's a second kind of discouragement here, and it's just the discouragement that comes from losing heart. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So at the same time as this external threat was looming, the people were losing heart just at the scale of the job itself. The clearing of the rubble from the past so that the walls could be given proper foundations was proving to be a much larger task than they had anticipated. And the builders facing now probably at least double the work they originally thought, they, they felt like giving up. The job increasingly felt beyond them such that they could never hope to complete it. And that sort of discouragement just drains away enterprise and reduces effort and generates apathy and inertia. And if left unchecked, whether in Nehemiah's day or our own, it festers and eventually leads to what Packer calls attitudinal rubble, which is a great phrase. Attitudinal rubble, such as procrastination, cynicism, self-absorption, fence-sitting, and infighting among God's people, all as a consequence of discouragement. Now, the use of these weapons of the evil one is not unfamiliar to the church today. There are certainly places in the world where the threat of physical attack on the church is much more of a reality than it is for us here. That's why we never want to forget to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who face the horrors of such persecution which is why we highlight these global needs every week in our Saturday prayer email. But the weapons of scorn and discouragement are real for Christians in every part of the world. So as we kind of move to the last part, we want to see how Nehemiah and the people respond to these attacks. And the response is threefold, but it's built upon a foundation that these attacks against God's people are actually attacks against the God of the people, and he will be the champion in this battle. Look at Nehemiah's reminders to the people in verses 
14 and 20. Verse 14, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. That was the ultimate assurance that they needed in order to respond. And it's the same assurance we have. But we have added insurance to our assurance because we now know something that Nehemiah didn't know, that our God has already fought for us in the ultimate battle against sin and death and the brokenness that was highlighted in the three circles presentation. He's fought for us already in that great battle, and he's won. He fought for us through our champion, Jesus Christ, who came to earth from heaven to defeat the one behind the Sanballats and the Tobias of this world, the devil himself. It reminds you of these words from Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that might be. The Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And he did win the battle. So if God has fought for us and won in our greatest battle, the battle for our eternal life, we can be assured that he will fight for us in all of the smaller battles that we face as well. So that knowing that God was their champion and fought for them, here are the three ways that Nehemiah and the people respond to attacks of scorn and, th and threats and discouragement. First of all, guess what? They pray. If you've been here for the first few weeks of, ne of Nehemiah, this should not be a surprise to you because for Nehemiah, prayer is clearly his instinctive reaction to any crisis of life. So after the scorn and the mocking, Nehemiah prays a two-point prayer in verses four and five. He pleads for God's support of his own servants, those who were being mocked, and he pleads for God's judgment on his own enemies, those doing the mocking. Then in verse 9, in response to the threat of physical attack, Nehemiah reports that we prayed to our God. And so for us, if we really believe that God is our champion, that our success depends on him fighting for us, then the first thing we're ever going to do in the face of opposition and difficulty has to be we pray. But secondly, they don't only pray. They work, and they keep working. I love verse 6 here, that after all the mockery and the scorn, followed by Nehemiah's prayer, here's the next thing Nehemiah reports. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. The matter of factness about that first sentence, so we built the wall, and the behavior that's behind that, that it records, it just sort of makes Sanballat and his friends suddenly look small and pathetic dwarfed by the faith and the unity and the energy of the builders. Because you see, for the, these builders, this, this work was not just a construction project. On translation words, the end of this verse is the people worked with all their heart. They had a shared purpose in their hearts. They knew this was God's work and it was for God's glory, all of which inspired them and pushed them forward in the rebuilding work, no matter what the scorn or the mockery they might endure. They work. 
And then thirdly, they keep watch. Nehemiah masterfully dealt with the threat of physical attack in a way that would also build up the people's low morale and strengthen their resolve. So that as you trace his actions through this chapter, you see him respond to the initial threat by posting a 24-7 guard. And then as the rumors of violence continued with demoralizing effect, he, he goes further. He actually stops the work and he arms the people and he strategically arranges the teams at the most exposed places along the wall. And Sanballat and his cronies learn of the Jews' preparation and that their own surprise attack had been frustrated. The pressure lessens on Nehemiah and his team. He's able to return the workers to the walls, but he doesn't forget the threat. So he sets a watch and he equips the workers with weapons as well as with tools. Either some people kept guard while others continued the building work or individuals did the building work with their weapons also on hand. And all of that obviously is not immediately transferable to our work of building and rebuilding in Christ Church today. But here, here is what is. Look at verse 9. We pray to God and set a guard. We pray to God and we set a guard. And why do you think they did both of those? Now, throughout the Bible, we see this emphasis on God's sovereignty and human responsibility as, as two things that go together. That God is completely in charge. No matter how bad things in the world seem to get, God is completely in charge. And yet, on the other hand, what you and I do really matters in this world. Now, we have a hard time putting those two things together, don't we? We say, how can, how can both of those be right? It would seem that if God is really in charge and in control of everything, then it doesn't really matter what I do. But if it really does matter what I do, then what's going to happen can't really be set in stone in God's plan because I might do something that changes that plan. So in the context of Nehemiah 4, we'd say, well, if you pray to God to protect you and you believe he will, then you don't have to set a guard. And if you do set a guard, then you must not believe that through your prayers, God will protect you. Either God is, so is sovereign and in charge, or what we do really does matter. Which is it? And of course, the Bible says it's both. And here is why that actually is an incredibly practical and important thing to grasp. Tim Keller articulates the importance of this by thinking about it in the context of prayer. He says, if you really believe that your prayers can change the plans of God, really change the will of God, you should never pray again. Because you have far too high a view of your own wisdom. How do you know what should happen? You don't. And I think he's right. You know, if my prayers really did determine the course of my life and the course of history, you know what? I would be a nervous wreck. I'd be afraid of praying for anything at all, for fear of praying for the wrong thing. And if each of us is honest, we can look back over recent weeks and months and years of our lives and see how, in hindsight, some of the things we prayed for were at best not in our best interests and at worst completely misguided. But on the other hand, if you think that everything is fated 
and it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter how we live, then you've no incentive to work hard, you've no incentive to do your best. But the Bible says that what you do does matter because you are responsible. You're a responsible human being for what you do. And yet, at the same time as being responsible for how you live, you and I need to know that you cannot completely screw up your life. Why? Back to the first point, because God is still in charge. He's in control. Now, those are very difficult for us to put together intellectually, but the Bible says they're both true. And you and I need to know that both those things are true, or frankly, you won't, you'll be too crippled to live your life. But when you do know that both are true, you pray and you post a guard. You pray, you work, and you keep watch at the same time as knowing that it's God who is fighting for you. And as we do all this praying, working, watching together, we do it side by side. Last night, the man who has had the biggest influence on me as a pastor died. Tim Fraser and I served together for four years at Ballywillen Presbyterian Church in Port Rush, Northern Ireland in the late 1990s, early 2000s. It was at my First time pastoral call after being ordained, I had very much to still learn. And Jim was a teacher, a mentor, a model, a friend, and a pastor to me. I love this man, and I'm grateful that Tara and I got to see him one last time in July when we were back in Northern Ireland. But if there's one thing that people from that congregation would say to Jim or to me about that season of ministry, and they said it to me this summer, it was this, they said, you were a great team. And I think they're right. Individually, while each of us had our gifts, and he many more than me, we were better together. We were better together. And what was true of Jim Fraser and Andrew Smith is always true of the church. We're always better together. Side by side, next to me, next to you, better together in prayer, better together in the work of evangelism and discipleship, acts of love, acts of mercy, better together as we keep watch. Friends, perseverance in rebuilding requires prayer and action. It's even better when we do it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who fights for us. You are the God who has fought for us most clearly and most importantly through the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, to defeat sin and death and the devil on our behalf so that we might know you as our Heavenly Father, might know eternal life, might know forgiveness of our sins. May our dependence on you be demonstrated by our prayer but also by our action, that these two things would mark our lives, that we would live lives of faith and obedience, all to your honor and glory as you build your kingdom. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.